This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. Hey, it's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 140, 140. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thank you for listening. Hey, I'm just back from the United States Bartenders Guild, Tampa Bay Chapters Repeal Day event, which was awesome. Really great event. Very, uh, very different than Tales of Cocktail. A lot smaller, and, uh, which is cool in a way because, you know, there's only one seminar at a time and everybody goes to each one pretty much uh, unless they have other uh, assignments, which, which happens. <laughs> Um, and I really want to thank Ingrid Rodriguez and the entire Tampa Bay chapter of the USBG for uh, welcoming me and make, making me feel welcome. It was a great event, ending in a, an amazing party. The gala on Saturday night was incredible. Uh, I couldn't believe uh, the scope of the thing, the, the the food, the drinks, the entertainment was incredible. And uh, everybody who came seemed to have a great time. I spoke to Ingrid about the gala and the, and the event as a whole and about, uh, about the USBG and why people should join. Let's listen in. Ingrid, thank you so much for uh, having me here to this event. Yeah, it was thank a you wonderful repeal, repeal day event. Awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank and you. Tonight is like unbelievable beyond oh, my expectations. Oh, you haven't even been inside. No, I have. I have. I've had a couple. I've had a couple. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk about like why people should join the USBG. Um, okay, so the United States Bartenders Guild uh, has been around actually since the 1920s. It was really kind of reinvented lately with the craft bartender focus. Um, you don't have to be a bartender to be in the Bartenders Guild. I myself oh, wow. am an enthusiast. That's one of the categories. Oh, it's for right? those that want to learn more about the craft of bartending. Uh-huh. Um, our goal is to show people that this is actually a career a career choice that yeah. these are people that work very hard at their skill set. Right. Uh, some of the things we focus primarily on education of both the bartenders and the consumers. The event that we're hosting tonight, of course, is our biggest fundraiser of the year. Yeah. Um, we also give a tremendous amount to charity. Uh, about 70% of our proceeds now are going to go to the different charities that we've uh, worked with. Uh-huh. We also, in all the uh, states around the country, we, all of our guilds work very closely within their community to, to bring about a sense of camaraderie and to showcase what we do. So whether it's a turn and burn bartender at TGIF or it's a bartender at Burn Steakhouse or something, we all have a, se- a similar sense of uh, what we do. Right. Burn Steakhouse, somebody told me about that. Like, I was, I was at home in New York and the owner of the best liquor store in town told me, go to Burn Steakhouse. Yes, <laughs> if you get an opportunity. Um, actually, their head, uh, their bar manager will be here later tonight, so all I'll right. introduce you. But tell us, like, on a, on a day-to-day or not day to day, but like on a monthly basis, what's it like? I mean, what what goes on? Uh, so once a month, at least, it's different in different chapters. Our chapter, uh, once a month, we have a um, we have a general meeting, and in that general meeting, we do a spirit tasting. We'll taste through the lines of different types of whiskeys to to educate both the, the our, our bartenders and our guests on. What's a single malt whiskey? What's a blended whiskey? What's a Canadian whiskey? And, and kind of give the nuances of why they're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have uh, bar training, so we can tell them what, what the proper tools are and why they use those tools. And um, so some people don't know what a mallet is, or they don't know how to properly mix a mojito. Or So we can kind of give everyone that, that education. And, we, and this year we're actually going to be videotaping most of what we do mm-hmm. so that we can give it out there to the the world at large, world, put it in the huh? cloud, and start yeah. training people. Yeah, and I saw Rob was videotaping all the conferences, all yeah. the uh, seminars. All Is that available those, to anyone? They will be. Where, um, we where? have uh, we have a YouTube channel for Repeal Day Conference. We have last year's videos, and we will have this year's videos up as well. Oh, that's great. And uh, so if, if someone's in an area where there is not a USBG, it must be difficult to get one going, or...? No, it's not very <laughs> difficult. Um, we have... We actually have... Um, 
think we're at 53 chapters and we have 10 that are uh, in, in probationary period. What you need to, to form a guild is 40 people that are interested. That those 40 people would then petition the national chapter to form their own chapter. Uh, they can't be within a two-hour drive of another chapter okay. um, unless it's in a different state. Mm. And then from that point, then they would be a provisional. Nationals would give them a provisional charter. They would have to maintain that for one whole year and do a certain amount of programming towards their members in order to carry the chapter. Um, what, and the programming is... Um obviously organized by the chapter, but mm-hmm. I, I guess you work with local sales reps and yep. things. Yeah, um, each, each USBG chapter works within their within their region with their liquor reps, um, the liquor distributors. Mostly the distributors are the ones we work directly with, and right. uh, they help us acquire the spirits and, and, and be able to do the tastings. They also help us with crafted dinners and, and stuff that we can give back to the consumers as well. Yeah, that's great. And... and- Bartenders, that that's who they want to reach. I mean, yes. and, you know. Yes. The, the, the way that <laughs> the way we look at the chain of command is that sales reps want the bartenders, the bartenders want the consumers. So from our end, if we can train the consumers to the difference between a high-end scotch and the well, then yeah. everybody wins because yeah. now the money is being shared and everyone's enjoying themselves. You, you hear that a lot from the from the liquor reps and the and the uh, brand ambassadors and stuff. It's like. Thank you guys for you know what you do, and, it, yes. and, it, and it's awesome, and, and it, it it just makes sense, you know. Yes. Well, I somebody just told me that you were elected president of this chapter I yesterday. Am. I am. I, we all received our messages yesterday. <laughs> I got home to a woohoo, I'm president. Yes. <laughs> That's so awesome. for the next two years, I will be gearing the ship, and I'm really excited to do wow. so. Well, you're doing an awesome job, and I mean, I, I can't imagine how much work this is. It's huge. There's a lot of work. I can <laughs> it's a tell. Full time job. Yeah. It's definitely a full time yeah, yeah. job. Awesome. That was great. great. Thanks. Thank Thank you. Thank you for coming. I'm glad you're having a great time. So look into joining the USBG. I think it's an amazing thing. I admit I haven't done it yet, but I am going to. And uh, you'll meet so many cool people and get get invited to so many cool events and you'll get invited. You'll get uh, inspired. And you don't have to be a member of the USBG to go to the event next year. Check it out. It was a great event, like I said, and uh, you might want to look into that next year in Tampa. Repeal day, of course. The day Prohibition ended on December 5th in 1931. Nope, sorry, 1933. Those videos that Ingrid mentioned, uh, if you go on YouTube, you could, you could search Repeal Day Conference Tampa USBG. Uh, it looks like Ro- it looks like they're under Rob's YouTube channel, which is called Bar Wars LLC. So, uh, but you'll find them. And uh, so from last year, here's a seminar right here. You can watch it for free right now on YouTube. Do it yourself. How to open a bar with Philip Duff and Deshaun Zarek. I'm going to watch that. (laughs) And it looks like there's one here with Dale DeGroff. Yeah, the deal with bitters with Dale DeGroff uh, from last year. So uh, awesome resources here. Um, There's a whole bunch of them. So check that out. The first night I was there, Wednesday night, Gramonier and Capapisco, well, the parent company, which is hard to pronounce, uh, Marnay La Poste, hosted an awesome dinner behind the bar. We found Deshaun Zarek and Philip Duff and Elaine Duff and Ian Burrell mixing up some amazing drinks. The food was incredible, the party was incredible, and the booze was incredible. We got to taste some, we got to taste down the line of the Gramonier. Uh, there, there's other um, variations on the Gramonier than you know. My pronunciation is ridiculously terrible, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce them. But uh, the first one, well, we tasted, of course, uh, the Gramonier you're familiar with. We tasted one that's aged up to 25 years. We tasted one that's aged up to 60 years. We tasted one with cognac 
in it as old as 100 years old. It was awesome, amazing, and I uh, had such a great time. And can't thank those guys enough. And Louise Marquis was there, and you've heard her, you heard her on the show two weeks ago talking about Capo Pisco, and uh, I forget how long ago talking about Gramignet. She's awesome, and I uh, can't say enough good things about that party. I'll put some links up on the website uh, with a little more information on those on those Gramignets that we got to taste. Uh, search for for the show notes for this particular episode. Uh, search for one four zero. This is episode one hundred forty. That's on bartenderjourney.net. On the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little Google search bar. That's where you can find what you're looking for if you're listening to this in the future and can't find the show notes. Hey, we need to do a cocktail of the week. Why don't we do one from the Gramenier Capa Pisco party I was just talking about. They served us a drink called the Girl Next Door. It was really good. Two ounces Capa Pisco, one ounce Orgeat syrup, one ounce fresh lime juice, shake and strain over crushed ice, and top with one ounce of ruby port that was really good want another cocktail recipe why not i got tons of them i took pictures of uh of the menus at different uh, parties and locations and stuff uh, this I, I remember tasting this one saturday night less oda lock less oda lock you know like Loch Ness monster <laughs> uh i don't have proportions here but uh whistle pig rye cointreau demerara syrup and chocolate and aromatic bitters that was a good one too i love cho- chocolate bitters are delicious all right, I know this episode's just kind of all over the place right now, but I want to tell you about the uh, Late Night Tiki Bar. Rob Husted and Josh Gates from Tiki Ono uh, did a pop-up bar from 12 midnight to 2 a.m. Uh, their, uh, their bar's called Tiki Ono in uh, Lake Worth, Florida, and uh, that was, again, sponsored by Real Puree and Di- Diplomatico, and uh, these guys are awesome. They're the real deal, and Rob is a badass flair bartender. Uh, I got to see it in person, and uh, it's just inspired me now even more. More. I keep saying it. I want to learn flair, and I, I haven't gotten around to it much. But uh, it's uh, it's it's impressive, man, what these guys do. Really fun to watch, and uh, keeps everybody happy. And oh, man, it was awesome. I got a little interview with Rob coming up in a minute. It's funny though, as Philip Duff said in one of the seminars. I think it was Philip who said it. Pretty sure it was. He said, he said uh, you know, he said, has anybody in the seminar learned uh, tried to learn the flair? And most people raise their hands. And uh, anybody got it good at it? And uh, <laughs> Rob and Josh were probably the only ones in the room that were. And uh, he goes, "It's fucking hard to learn a flair, isn't it?" He says, uh, "He says you can learn. You can learn how to do, you know, mixology or whatever. You know, you can make cocktails. Learn to make cocktails in about a day. You could practice flair for a month and still suck at it." <laughs> All right, here's a quick little interview with my new friend Rob. This was the first time I met him, but uh, I got a chance to hang out with him quite a lot over the over the week. And uh, now I consider him a good friend. And uh, he's an awesome guy, awesome bartender, and an awesome flair bartender. So uh, we'll, here, we'll learn a little bit about flair bartending. Flair is something I really want to learn more about, you know, and... and uh where do you start? <laughs> Where do you start? Uh, biggest thing, online. There's yeah. plenty of free videos out there. Uh, you go to YouTube or you can go to bartendbetternow.com and you learn yeah. for free. There's a bunch of free videos there. And then what you can do is once you, you get excited to do it is buy some practice bottles. Spend about 15, 20 bucks on a bottle. It's weighted just like an empty bottle, virtually indestructible, so it'll take a beating more than glass will. Mm-hmm. And just start learning the moves. And then it's amazing, as much like Nick said in the seminar today, yeah. The more you practice, like in your backyard and hopefully not in front of your TV in the living room because you'll break something, <laughs> but the more you practice in your backyard garage and you get that confidence down, you get it, and when you do it behind the bar, you look like a professional. You look like you're, you're, you're in control of your tools and a master, and plus you're entertaining. Right. I can get a rum and coke at the bar next door and spend $8. I can get a rum and coke at your bar and spend $8, but get a little more entertainment, I'm coming to your bar every time. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I found uh, doing it outside is a good place to practice with the bottles because they fall on the grass. You know, you're not gonna. Yeah, for break Florida, your it's great for us. For New York, I guess you got to do it certain times of the year. <laughs> right. Well, cool. But yeah, it is such. I agree with that. Like you know, seeing somebody who's just so confident with their tools, you, you like this guy knows what he's doing. This guy's a badass. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> right. You ultimately build up that confidence without even having to say in a word. They watch you, and like they're gonna trust you. You build up yeah. that trust. So no matter what cocktail you make, it's gonna taste that much better. Yeah, and that's a hard thing to get people to try something new. Yeah, I find that very difficult. Uh, but I, yeah, I think that's a good way to approach it. You know, like uh, this guy, this guy knows what he's doing, so uh, I'm going to trust him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so funny, but you know, the cocktail uh, culture, if we want to call it that, is just you know situated a lot in the big cities. You know, and and just outside the cities, it, it, not so much. You know. Yeah, I mean, it's the same with anywhere. The more population, the more people doing it, the more popular it's going to be. Yeah. And the cool thing is, like, geez, and our craft now is so much more advanced now, not just with the bartenders, but also the consumers, than it was maybe five, ten years ago because the information's out there. Yeah. The information's on the Internet. The information, there's TV shows all about it now. You can turn on yeah. Food Network and see them. Not these chefs just making food anymore, but they're making cocktails. Like, everybody's yeah. doing it because the information's there. So now the expectation's there, and it just keeps raising the bar more and more. Mm-hmm. So, so Flair, I, I want to get back to, like, where, where to start. Because, you know, I, I've been watching the videos and probably not practicing nearly enough. But, <laughs> but, and it, it is something you really need to practice mm-hmm. a, a lot, right? And you don't want to practice behind your bar. No, exactly. You never, you never want to look like you don't know what you're doing. Exactly. Because we all got egos. We all want to look like rock stars. We don't want to look like assholes. I don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Yes, I said that word. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, please. No, please. Feel free. Um, so, yeah, but what I'll give you this advice, too, is not just pra- besides practicing you know, outside of work, practice with somebody else. Hmm. It's the same with you do like when you go to the gym and you, you get more motivated that way. Mm-hmm. You hold each other accountable right. and it's amazing how much you can learn by watching someone else. When you, when you sit back and watch and you see the moves, in your perspective, you see your, your virtual reality perspective as you're watching it from here. But watching it from a distance is like, wow, that looks so cool. When you do a little this or twist this or add this mm, to this, right. you'll get inspired yeah. from watching someone else to come up with your own moves, but as well as you keep pushing and motivating each other. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely a great tip. That's good, yeah. Um, the fra- you hear the phrase working flair a lot. And yes. I think, I, think that's, I think that's where, you know, bartenders really need to focus. You know, if you're going to compete in flair, that's one thing, but working flair... 100% agree, and I'm a huge advocate of working flair, so I'm so glad you said that. Like, exhibition flair is great, don't get me wrong, and the difference between working flair and exhibition flair is exactly just what it sounds. Working flair is stuff you can do behind the bar any day, any bottle, any amount of liquid in there, and it be realistic moves that entertain while working towards the drink-making process. Right. Exhibition flair is just what it sounds when you're doing an exhibition, when you're doing a competition, and the bottles are usually have a long neck, so it's an easy grip. Uh, about two ounces or less of liquid in there, so you can give ro- multiple rotations, so you can do multiple objects, and you're putting on a show. Yeah. It's not so much about the drink-making technique right. and building towards the drink. It's more about putting on a show and entertaining, right. and it's, there's different aspects of it. Yeah. They both have great places in, in the world of bartending. I'm a little more partial to working flair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and working flair is a uh kind of something that won't slow you down too much, hopefully, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, honestly, though, we, you know, we go to a, a cocktail bar, we go to different bars, we expect different things, different expectations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go to a good cocktail bar, and I expect to wait a little bit to get a good cocktail, where they're yeah. going to put a little time and effort and some great ingredients into that cocktail. The same thing when I see working flair. I know it might take a few seconds longer than just the actual moves, but I'm getting entertained, so I, I, I'm okay with that. And now I'm okay with that. I'm telling all my friends about it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, I'll tell you what, Rob really sold me on flair, especially 
when I got to see him and Josh at that late night pop-up bar doing doing their tiki thing uh, with you know the teamwork between the guys was fun the banter was fun and it was just a great time and, and I'm totally sold on Flair just just watching Rob for that one for that couple of hours there so again his website is bartendbetternow.com uh, feel free to check that out there's a lot of free resources there Oh, and speaking of interviews, I mentioned uh, that. Did I mention Heaven, <laughs> Heaven Hill uh, sp- sponsored some uh, breakfast? And, oh, and that other and the after party. And uh, Ms. Lynn House was there. Uh, she's a great lady. And uh, well, why don't we just listen to that interview right now? We're here at the USBG Tampa edition repeal day party. It's <laughs> it's about ten o'clock in the morning, and we're mixing up some drinks. Awesome. Here with Lynn House. And Michelle Shaw. Shaw. Well, very nice to meet you. Well, we should talk about Elijah Craig because. All right. First of all, here, I'll come over and we'll talk. So we're actually innovators of small batch. So Elijah Craig was the first small batch that was created by um, Parker Beam uh-huh. um, in 1986, 85, 86. Um, and so for us, there's actually no legal definition of what a small batch is, but for us, it's never more than 100 barrels. Um, typically, we stay between 75 and 80 barrels. Right. So. Yeah, so it's small batch doesn't have a legal definition, yes. as, you, as you said. Yeah, yes, single barrel has a legal definition. Bottled and bond has a legal definition. Small batch doesn't. So you can have distilleries who could, you know, blend up to four, 400, 500 and call it a small batch. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, it's never more than 100, so it's um, just some really great, um, just beautiful juice. The youngest bourbon that's in there is going to be 12 years old. There will be wh- whiskeys in there that are older, but nothing younger than 12, because that's what the age statement on there. there is a, that is a legal definition, so when you put an age on it, nothing can be younger than what the age says. Right, right. Yeah. And bottled and bond, what, what does that mean exactly? So Bottled and Bond Act was uh, created in 1897, and it was we legislated whiskey before we legislated anything else in this country before food or anything like that because so many bourbons were just being made really um, inappropriately. People were putting tobacco juice and prune juice and all these things to create flavor. So the Bottle and Bond Act was essentially um, created for, it can be for any spirit, but was originally designed for whiskey to set some standards to it. And you would have treasurymen and they would come and they would check your warehouses each week to make sure that you were doing everything. So at the minimum, a Bottle and Bond has to be four years old can't be younger than that so it's a four-year-old whiskey it has to be made by a single distillery it has to be made within a single growing season so a distillery can't blend from other seasons like if they've had whiskeys left over it's got to be within that growing season they can't like borrow vintage, really. it's, it's almost like a vintage <laughs> really without having a vintage statement without, without an, and it yeah, goes into here. a bottle no less or no more than a hundred proof so at the end, at the very least, when you see bottled and bond, you know, four years old, 100 proof, single distillery, single growing season. Mm-hmm. And there was some tax ramifications to that as well, right? Well, Isn't that why originally... Well, there you had bondsmen who came through and you paid taxes. And we still do, to this day, pay taxes on proof. So the higher proof, um, that's one reason why you don't see as many bottled and bonds, because the higher proof your spirits are... The more taxes we, as a as a supplier, will oh, actually pay on a spirit, huh. um, but there's great history and great integrity that goes into bottle and bond, and um, that's why you're seeing a resurgence in the category. It's a category that we've always um, uh, excelled in. We produce of the 
22 readily available bottle and bonds in the country. We produce about 70% of them. So if I understand correctly, originally it was stored in a government warehouse. It's stored right? in a government warehouse. Is that still the case? That's still the case okay. to actually be truly. And then on, when you look on the back of a bottle, you can always know there are some products that are out now and they call themselves bonded. Uh, but if you flip the back of their bottle, you're going to look for a number that's known as their DSP number, which is their destination of original production number and so for instance we have dspky1 on ours because we have distiller license number one in kentucky (laughs) with evan williams so that also tells you that this is where it's made from so you can a real quick way to check and see if you're buying something that's called bonded if it's actually truly a bottle and bond flip that bottle around to the back if you don't see a dspk number on it then it's not a bottle and bond they're just using it more as a as a gimmick marketing Mm -hmm. yeah Uh uh-huh well may i uh taste just the tiniest taste of that neat absolutely so this is a classic (laughs) bourbon mash bill which is um traditionally corn so by law it has to be 51 percent corn um, to be a straight bourbon Um, we use rye as our secondary grain and then barley that barley's in there to help kickstart fermentation natural fermentation because it's a, a very easily fermentable grain um, and this is what's known as a traditional bourbon mash bill we make other bourbons in our portfolio we have larceny which is a weeded bourbon um, that's a great bargain that larceny it's a it's a oh great bourbon and so for that in lieu of the rye we have wheat so it's corn wheat and barley and when you want to think about what does that do to a whiskey, how does that affect the flavor profile, you think bread. Rye bread is yeah. spicy, corn yeah. bread is sweet, wheat bread is nutty, barley's got even kind of a little kind of hazelnutty quality to mm. it. And so weeded bourbons tend to be a little softer, a little sweeter. Um, a classic rye bourbon mash bill, which is a traditional bourbon mash bill, which is rye, secondary grain, but at least 51% corn, are going to have a little spice and depth. And because this has been aged for 12 years, you're going to get a lot of those lignans and wood tannins that come out of the barrel. That just get, I mean, this is my Manhattan. This is my old-fashioned. It's just got some great weight at 94 proof, 12 years old. And we're $10 less a bottle on average nationally than the closest competitor in this category. Mm. So It's delicious. But we're actually celebrating this year Heaven Hill, our 80th birthday. Wow. We're an independent family-owned company. We're the largest family-owned and operated distillery in the United States, and we're the largest American-owned and operated distillery in the United States, and it's the second and third generation, and um, I just think you taste all of that heritage and that integrity when you taste any of our products from Elijah Craig to our LaCourse, Palma, Demita Canton, and such. Mm-hmm. A lot of these companies are owned by overseas... Yes, and we're uh, not. Yeah. We're in Bardstown, Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, and you can That's go great. and, and, it's, and it's you a can see Max and Runner yeah. driving his car. Yeah. <laughs> and we're completely independent, so there's... And you're actually making the stuff, which we're is not always the We're actually making the, the stuff. We don't, we don't, there's, there's MGP, and there's some great products that are made with MGP yeah. juice. I don't want to yeah. yeah, yeah, denigrate yeah. that, but yeah, we take absolutely. great pride in the fact that we, we get the hardcore grain, we ferment it we distill it we yeah. make the product ourselves there's some great products made by mgp i, I agree no, there are but, so it's when, not, but, but there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of transparency there correct and there's complete transparency with ours and then it's just also i think the cost factor that it's very interesting that we do make our own juices and everyone always looks at our pricing they're like it's such a great value price we aren't public we don't have shareholders or stockholders and we we charge you what it's worth like yeah we're the only American distillery also that makes every uh, whiskey mash bill. So we make our traditional bourbon, 
recipe, which is Elijah Craig. We make our weeded bourbon, which is Larceny. We make a corn whiskey. So um, in our bottled and bond, we have um, um, our uh, mellow corn. We make a rye, which we're known for with our Pikesville and our Rittenhouse. And then we make a weeded bourbon, which is Bernheim. And Bernheim, another historical brand for us, uh, Bernheim was actually the first new style of whiskey created since Prohibition. So there hadn't been wheat-led whiskeys before here in the United States. And Bernheim was the first. We've been making it for 14 years now. Um, it's the innovation of Craig Beam. So we're also the only... American distillery that still has Beams distilling for us. So it's Craig Beam, who is the son of Parker Beam, who is the son of Earl Beam, who was our original master distiller. So as it's been a direct family line of owning the company, it's a direct line of distillers from father to son. The father to son passed down with that tradition. We now have three master distillers because our portfolio is so expansive. So we still have Craig Beam. Um, we have Denny Potter, and then we have Charlie Downs, who's our master distiller at our boutique Evan Williams Bourbon Experience. Mm. Oh, it must be a lot of fun to visit the uh, distillery. It's great. <laughs> it's great. I highly recommend anybody that goes to um, Kentucky and you do the Bourbon Trail. There's eight stops on the Bourbon Trail, and we have two of the eight. So, one in Louisville and one in Bardstown. Uh, what's the big event down there at Bourbon, bourbon Fest, is it? There's or? Bourbon Fest in September, because September is like Bourbon Month. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a big bourbon fest, and they have balls and all kinds of things. It's like a whole week of events. So, yeah. yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. You, you said um, traditional bourbon mash bill. Mm-hmm. Weeded bourbon weeded bourbon mash bills was a different style. The first mash bills, because you've got to look at the history of whiskey through the country. So rye is what we first grew here. And so it comes from the tradition of Scottish and Irish settlers in the United States. And if you look at how the country grew, we started on the East Coast, it's cooler and that's where rye excels. So rye was something that we were using. Um, Corn came as we expanded. Rye doesn't grow so well in, in 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 the further south, the warmer corn is like a weed. Um, So that's one of the reasons why we have bourbon because in order to get settlers, people, they got so much land, they had to plant so much corn and one of the things they did with that crop was they made whiskey, but that rye tradition had already come with them, so we were using rye and whiskeys, even when we were making bourbon and blending it with the corn um, but then weeded bourbon, wheat grows very well in the cooler southern states and in the Midwest and so that became a secondary grain and a, a newer style of bourbon it's been around for quite a while Pappy Van Winkle Maker's Mark, Buffalo Trace, those are all weeded bourbons mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah awesome, well thank you You're welcome. lovely conversation Beautiful. <laughs> that's the wonderful Lynn House ladies and gentlemen she really knows what she's talking about Another seminar we had was with Wes Henderson of Angel's Envy. Angel's Envy is a wonderful bourbon, and uh, it was a blending seminar. So we actually got to try blending different um, expressions, different different variations of their Angel's Envy to make up our own. And uh, they paired us up in teams. And uh, our our first try, me and my partner, was uh, we made a pretty awesome bourbon, if I do say so myself. (laughs) But uh, I got a chance to talk to Wes Henderson after the seminar, and here's that interview. We're here with Wes Henderson from Angel's Envy. It was a great seminar. It was really fun to make our own blends of bourbon. That was awesome. Thanks. It was a good group. It's always fun to sit down and especially with people that are more people that are in the industry yeah. that have a heightened awareness of bourbon and talk about blending and and actually create something with them. You know, they're creating stuff every day as, as far as cocktails go, but yeah. 
for them to sit down and us for sit down together and, and create a, a blend of bourbon is really exciting. Well, yeah, I guess the bartenders are more tuned into that. You know, I, I taste uh, apricots, I taste this and that, and the, and the different samples. So just to explain to uh, people who don't know, we had we had three different um, expressions of the Angel's Envy, and we were we were blending ourselves to come up with something new and that, and that's how angel how it's made right that's how you guys do it it is i mean to a certain extent we our job is is to make angels and be consistent as consistent as we can so we're pulling barrels from different places in the warehouse different warehouses different floors different ages different you know times finished in port barrels and having to manage to bring all those in to create a consistent taste profile and what we did today was we just took three like you said three different expressions and we blended them together to come up with a profile that each group liked yeah. And it, I think it was a good demonstration of how, you know, just subtle, even small changes in those batches can dramatically change the outcome of, of what you blended. Mm-hmm. So the samples that we had, what, explain what was the difference between the three samples that we had. They varied. Um, so one of the samples had been finished in port a lot longer. Right. Really, that was, that was the distinctive difference. The first sample had been finished in port the least amount of time. The second a little bit longer the third the longest so those dried fruits that you get as it increases the port finishing came out more in the third sample the first sample was a little, had a little more heat to it which some people when they did their blend they liked that heat mm-hmm. they they didn't want it to be as soft as it could be using some of the other samples so they mixed in the one that had a little more heat and made it a little bolder and it's all really personal preference and what you're trying to accomplish now before it went into the port wine barrel was it just emptied from one from the first fill bourbon cast, obviously? Exactly. Just one-to-one? Exactly. Well, it's, it's not quite one-to-one, but it's close. The, 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 uh, the port barrels are 60 gallons, so it's, it's okay. significantly, well, significantly more. When we dump a barrel of bourbon based upon how long it's been in that barrel, our yield is anywhere from 43 to 45 gallons out okay. of that first fill bourbon barrel. Out of the 55-gallon right. barrel. Right. Correct. Right. So then we go into the 60-gallon barrel after that. So we're pulling some okay. from, from other barrels when okay. we do that. We but, usually vat them in a, in, a lar- in a big tank, okay. and then we'll pump them into the port barrels. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But it was refreshing to hear you say that uh, you know it, it doesn't have to be totally consistent year to year, you know, because you don't hear that from many distillers, and I, I, I love that. I mean, I, I'd love to see you know vintage bourbon. I want to try everything and see how the difference year to year. And that's a really good observation, and, and I appreciate that. That's one thing from the very beginning that I was insistent on, and. I mean, we know it's a small company and, and, you know, a small batch product. We knew there were going to be some subtleties from blend to blend. So I thought it was crazy to to pretend like it didn't exist yeah. or to work even harder to make it not exist at all right. when you could embrace the way it turns out and know that it's going to be in the same wheelhouse. Yeah. So, But you embrace it. I, in the, in the, in the uh, seminar, I call it a journey of discovery, and that's yeah. the way I look at it. Right, right. And then, But you will get uh, collectors looking to, you know, to, to, to collect the different uh, expressions or different different years and different and taste the differences. We get that. I didn't expect it. Yeah. You know, we didn't really do it for a marketing thing, yeah, but yeah. but we label the side of each bottle with the batch number and the bottle number. So the batch number is the most significant part. Mm-hmm. That's a 500 gallon batch. So that's where you'll see those subtleties. So let's say tank A, tank B, tank C, tank D. That there, there may be some subtlety, so we're seeing the collectors actively seek out those different labels and, and collect them and do, do verticals on them, and it's just one of those pleasant things that you didn't expect, but you're happy that people care that much to try it. That's it, yeah. Well, I guess there's room for both. I mean, you know, there's certain Tennessee whiskeys that 
I mean, one brand in particular, it needs to taste the same every time you go into a bar. It needs to taste exactly the same. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it definitely for some brands, you, they tend to be a little more homogenous. But even though we have, can have some subtle differences, unless you have those blends right yeah. next to each other, yeah. unless you're an experienced bourbon drinker like you are and like the people are here at the event, you're probably not going to pick up those differences unless you've got them next to each other. Yeah, yeah. that's what my, one of my favorite things to do is take whether it's a cocktail or a spirit and taste, you know, just very one ingredient, which is why this seminar was so much fun. Exactly. And our first our first blend came out so good. Look, <laughs> you don't really happy don't, with it. don't mess with perfection, <laughs> and it was good. I tasted it, so I, I was very impressed. Uh, you guys seem to have nailed it, and. Uh, I'm, uh, we was a good group today. They they did yeah. a really good job, and you know they're professionals. So yeah. Yeah. I I held them to a little higher standard uh-huh. than I would civilians, but yeah. they did a good job. Everybody <laughs> did a good job. Yeah. So you do this this uh, seminar with with consumers? Yeah, I will. I'll do this uh, at some uh, a lot of times food and wine shows and other mm-hmm. places where it's a little more conducive to people that are really into taste profiles. And uh, I do them around the country. I probably do maybe 20 a year, 20 or 30 a year like this. And each one's different. That's what's, that's what's fun for me yeah. is that yeah, yeah. the people are different. The outcomes yeah. are different. The samples are different. You know, the mm-hmm. A, B and sample, A, B and C samples we work with today mm-hmm. after the first of the year, they'll be different. Yeah. Right. So and it's a journey of discovery for me as well, because I'll be tasting all those for the first time and blending them for the first time. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, and we'll have some influence on you and, and, and what goes in the bottle. That's it? great. Absolutely. <laughs> well, the brand's always been like that. The brand has been heavily influenced from the very beginning by, um, by consumers and by industry people. We've been very in tune with that. Yeah. Have you had any trouble keeping up with demand lately? I know it's, yes. it, it can be hard to find in stores. Now. Yeah. It's, you know, the brand has done so well. It's, uh, it is difficult sometimes to keep up with demand, which is a, you know, is a good and a bad good, thing. Good problem to have. Um, <laughs> But, you know, we're, we're opening our new distillery in Louisville uh, in the middle of 2016. Right. That will go a long way towards, you know, alleviating some of the, the product, uh, uh, you know, the ability to keep up with the demand. How, how much uh, expanded capacity do you expect to have now? We the, could probably do a million cases a year out of that plant. So and, it's a, and you do it We're doing now. about 100,000 now. Wow. Ten, tenfold. Yeah. Wow. So we, we wanted it to we wanted it to be a you know a facility that'll be able to keep up with demand for the next ten years. You know. That's uh, great. And then we but we can scale that as well. We can add in. We can add shifts. We can add fermentation. The still itself has more capacity than that. It's just the ability to it's a, it's a column still. So the the output is really dictated by first of all the number of shifts and your ability to to have enough fermented mash. Right to feed the beast. You know, the, the, the column stills the beast. You've got yeah. to be able to feed the beast. <laughs> so to feed the beast more, you add shifts, you add fermenters, and, you know, and then once you can't feed the beast anymore then, and the beast can't handle it, then you buy a bigger still. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, you, I, I apologize. I don't know too much about the history of the uh, company. You, did your dad found the company? My father and I started the company together. Um, dad had retired from Brown Foreman. Um, okay. Dad was our master distiller for 40 years. He created Woodford Reserve, Gentleman Jack, Jack Daniels Single Barrel, and a bunch of other products. So wow. when Dad had retired, uh, I can't, I was, I'm an ex-Brown Foreman guy as well. I came to Dad and said, hey, let's think about doing something as a family. Mm-hmm. And he agreed. He had no idea that it was going to be, he probably didn't know that it was even going to happen, mm-hmm. but he definitely had no idea that it would be as big as it is today. And he was, fortunately, he was around long enough to see it do real well. We lost him in 2013, but yeah. he saw some great things happen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry to hear your dad passed away. Thank you. My, my dad passed a couple years before that. It's yeah. not an easy time. No, it's not. Yeah. But uh, 
Wow, well, congratulations on all your success. Thank you again for the seminar. Thanks. And the interview. Thanks and, for uh, talking with me. I appreciate it. Such a pleasure to meet you. All right, take care. All Thank right. you. Thank you. That was another great seminar. Hey, I was so excited to tell you about my fun time down in Tampa. I forgot to do a book of the week at the top of the show. I'm going to tell you a little bit more, a little bit more about the trip. Uh, but first, first, let's do our book of the week. It's The Birth of Bourbon, a photographic tour of early distilleries. It's a beautiful book by Carol Peachy and uh, would make an awesome gift this season, this holiday season, for your favorite bourbon lover or yourself. I'll put a link up to that on uh, an Amazon link on bartenderjourney.net. Any holiday shopping you're doing on Amazon, you'd be doing the show a big favor by just going to bartenderjourney.net, click on any of those Amazon links, and then buy anything after clicking through. You don't have to buy the thing that uh, I recommended there, but you can buy anything after clicking through, and it doesn't cost you any extra. And uh, it'll help out pay for the costs of uh, putting this show on a little bit. I'd appreciate it. Also on bartenderjourney.net, you'll see links to Flavar, and that makes a great present for someone else or yourself, too. You can get tasting packs, small little uh, samples of different whiskeys or rums or gins, or uh, there's, there's a bunch of them you can choose from, and uh, get sample sample packs, and you can have a sample, you can have a tasting party, or you can get full-size bottles of uh, some great spirits there on Flavar. They have a great app, too. Uh, look for their app, a free app on um, on Android, or I think it's on Android. It's definitely on iOS. Uh, iOS. So back to the seminars and uh, the the event down in Tampa, the uh, Repeal Days Conference. Souther Teague, owner of Amor e Amargo, a great bar in Manhattan. I'd been there a couple of times, uh, but never happened to be there uh, at the same time. Never happened to meet the man before. He put on a great seminar. Uh, it was about hospitality and bartender psychology, sponsored by Jägermeister. And uh, they made a great cocktail. They served us a great cocktail. It was uh, 1.5 ounce Jäger. 0.75 ounce fresh grapefruit juice and 0.75 dry curacao. Mm, that was good. So the seminar was about hospitality and bartender psychology. He talked about the uh, the steps of service minute by minute. Uh, he talked about uh, how every single guest gets a greeting when they walk in, so they feel welcome and they feel like they belong there. You know, how many times have you walked into a, a business, a business, a bar, or, or elsewhere where uh, you know you feel ignored and you're like, this place sucks. I'm leaving. He likes to get the cocktail menu in hand uh, in 10 seconds. Now you've given them something, a gift, and you walk away for a bit and uh, give them a little bit of space. He said, now they owe you something. You gave them a little gift. Then you walk away, you come back with gift number two, a glass of water. Maybe start up a little conversation, uh, a little small talk. How did you hear about us? Then you can gather a little information on this person and kind of kind of suss them out a little bit. Next, of course, take their order. Then come back with the drink. Repeat the name of the drink. Tell them what's in it and uh, tell them what it tastes like, the power of suggestion. Tell them how delicious it is. And uh, that, that goes a long way to uh, the power of suggestion. He talked about the fascinators he puts around his bar, all little... Uh, He's, you know, he sells like bottles of bitters and bar tools and things, and there's just stuff all around the bar. And it's fun. It's so fun to look at, and it, you know, it inspires conversation, gives you something to do, and uh, and it's a lot of fun. He talks about the uh, the tab. He says you can't do this everywhere if it's a super busy bar. His bar is tiny, by the way, if you haven't been there. Uh, but he he doesn't like to take credit card right away. He says I trust you. I don't want your money right now. Pay me when you're done. And I think that's a great point. I've I've noticed that too. And it's like, uh, you know, obviously if it's a busy bar and the people are four deep in the bar and wandering around, you can't do that. But uh, you know, like when you go to a restaurant, you you don't give them your credit card the minute you sit down, right? Talked about keeping their water glass uh, full keeps people uh, healthy and happy, and they and they'll drink more. 
He says, keep the bar clean, uh, clear empty glasses as quickly as possible, and subtly give them uh, the menu again. That gives you a signal, hey, it's time to do this all over again. Time to order another drink. And then uh, we're up to step number nine. Uh, I wasn't numbering those as I went along, but I did in my in my notes. Uh, step number nine, it's time to go. There should be nothing left but the glass of water uh, on the bar. Present them with the bill face down. Tell them the price, and I'll take that whenever you're ready. Process the payment he wants, to, he wants to process the payment within 1.5 minutes, minute and a half. There's nothing worse than wanting to leave, and the guest is like, it's time to leave. I told him I want to leave. Why can't I leave? Number 10, if, if the change is in cash, give them the change neatly. And, and don't ask, do you need change? Give them, just give them the change, you know? But uh, put all the dollar bills facing the same way, nice and neat, right in front of the guest. Don't don't throw it at the down on the bar. And, of course, we're going to thank the guest again and say goodbye as they leave. Great stuff. Oh, he had an he had an awesome bit about how not a bit, but uh, he he told the story about how he used to have he has these uh, buttons that says I love bitters, and he used to have a big glass jar right on the bar of these uh, buttons, and anyone could help themselves to it, but uh, people would reach in, grab a whole handful, and he was like, I don't like that, so uh, then he put a sign on it, uh, buttons one dollar. So now people reach in and take just one and ask, Hey, can you put this on my tab? And he and he's always like, No, man. It's fine. I'm not going to put it on your tab. Free. Brilliant. Now the guest feels like they're getting something of a value. It's, they feel like they're uh, you're, you're really taking care of them, and uh, what a great idea that is. So at the very end of the seminar, Souther said something really awesome. He said, we don't sell the booze, the bitters, the ice. All that stuff comes free with the hospitality. That was awesome. I was a huge fan of the of his bar before. Uh, now that I've met him, I'm a huge fan of the uh, the man himself. I went up to him afterwards. I was like, "You got to do that that uh, seminar, Tales of the Cocktail," and he's like, "Yeah, I've been thinking about it." Of course, the uh, time to submit a seminar for 2016 has already passed, but uh, maybe 2017. All right, stay tuned to the very end of the podcast for our toast. We do a toast at the end of every show. But first, I'll tell you again, my name is Brian Vincent Weber. Feel free to email me for any reason at all at brian at bartenderjourney.net. You can find me on Twitter at barkeeptips. You can find the Facebook page. Just search uh, Facebook for Bartender Journey. Oh, I started the Instagram account um, after not having one for a long time. That's Bartender Journey as well. No spaces or anything. Hey, if you find the show entertaining and useful, the best thing you can do to help out is tell somebody about it. Tell a friend or another bartender uh, and recommend it. You can also go to iTunes and leave some ratings and reviews. Be like Danny Jacks. Leave five stars and say something nice. And don't forget, on bartenderjourney.net, you'll see those Amazon links. Click through those links and do your shopping on Amazon, and uh, it doesn't cost you any extra, and you'll be helping out the show a little bit. All right, here's our toast, and this is for all the new friends I made down in Tampa during this trip. May the friends of our youth be the companions of our old age. Cheers. We'll see you next time on Bartender Journey. (laughs) 